Hocassin Baptist Church presents Jesus of Suburbia, a five-part series taught by Pastor Rick Bino in the winter of 2008. The second message is entitled, A Theology of Less. First, our scripture readings, and then Pastor Rick. Proclaim to the fortresses of Ashdod and to the fortresses of Egypt, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria, See the great unrest within her and the oppression among her people. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, who hoard plunder and loot in their own fortresses. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. An enemy will overrun the land. He will pull down your strongholds and plunder your fortresses. This is what the Lord says. As a shepherd saves from the lion's mouth only two leg bones or a piece of an ear, so will the Israelites be saved, those who sit in Samaria on the edge of their beds and in Damascus on their couches. Hear this and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord, the Lord God Almighty. On the day I punish Israel for her sins, I will destroy the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivy will be destroyed, and the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. Matthew six nineteen, <clears throat> Do not store up for yourselves treasures on the earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where the thieves do not break in and steal. For your treasure, for where your treasure is, your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Good morning once again. This is our second teaching from our Jesus of Suburbia series. And our goal as we walk through this series together is to uncover the philosophy of life that suburbia propagates. And to talk about the truth of God's word in the midst of this philosophy of life. I suggested to you last week that suburbia is pushing on you more than just, is trying to sell you more than just a nice four-bedroom, two-bath home on a quiet street. But that suburbia is pushing upon us and selling us and advocating for us a certain philosophy of life, a certain way of approaching the world, a certain worldview is being pushed on us again and again by suburbia. And I called it last week the suburban terms and conditions, and here they are as a review. These are the terms and conditions according to suburbia. You will focus on competition, advancement, and achievement. Secondly, you will characterize yourself as a consumer and consistently accumulate material goods. Third, you will show a high regard for comfort and convenience. Lastly, you will prioritize independence and protectiveness of yourself, your family, and your possessions. These are the terms presented to us by suburban living, and fortunately for us, 
We do not have to live by them. But more often than not, we do. And we do this for several reasons. One of them is that it's pushed on us a hundred times a day from a hundred different directions. We are pushed to consume, to achieve, to be comfortable. And so we find ourselves following these terms and conditions. Part of the reason is because it's done so easily. You don't need to think much at all to follow these terms and conditions. You just need to sort of go with the flow. And so we end up sort of in this nice suburban slumber in our nice suburban world, making no difference at all. But there's another reason we follow these terms and conditions, and that is, I think, because there is some goodness and blessing in them. None are wrong in and of themselves, especially if pursued rightly. Achievement in and of itself is not ungodly. Material things are not sinful by nature. God certainly provides us with blessings and comfort of protection and convenience. So parts of these, uh, these terms appeal to us because there's a glimmer of truth in them. There's something attractive and godly in them. But when they start to define us, when we start to pursue our whole lives are wrapped around these terms and conditions, we find that they don't bring blessing, that in reality they end up destroying us. I'm going to talk a little bit about Frederick Nietzsche. Nietzsche was no friend of Christianity, and he would hate the fact that he's being used in a sermon, which makes it all the more fun for me. He wrote a book entitled, Thus Spoke Zarathustra. You may have been forced to read it at some point in your uh, philosophy classes in college. It's a book where he mocks the Judeo-Christian values. It's anti-Christian. It's generally anti-God. It's where he says famously, God is dead. Ironically, however, he paints an image in that book that is helpful for our discussion today. So I'm going to use that image for the good of the kingdom, even though Nietzsche intended it for the opposite. There's one strange passage in the book where Zarathustra, sort of the main character, it's sort of a weird kind of like philosophical book, so... It kind of has a plot, but not really. So anyway, there's Zarathustra, and he has this vision, and he visions an ear the size of a person. So imagine me, but I'm all ear. Okay? So he ima- and he sees this sort of odd, grotesque image of an ear. And then he sees this little something hanging off the ear. He gets out a magnifying glass, and he looks. And off of this ear is this, quote, small, thin stalk. But this stalk was a human being with this monster ear. And Zarathustra ponders this and then calls this grotesque image an inverse cripple. There was too much of a good thing. Too much of one thing. And one writer, David Goetz, contends that, the suburbs, that suburbia, or the suburbs, creates in us inverse spiritual cripples. We get too much of a good thing. And we go after, and we get too much of it, and we become these inverse spiritual cripples, not because we lack, but because we have too much. Too much comfort, 
too much competition, too much convenience, too much stuff. And then we're suckered by the terms and conditions of suburbia into thinking that these are the very things that form us, when in reality they're the very things that deform us. We become what Zarathustra saw. A person out of proportion, a person out of balance, out of whack. We have these giant achievements, these giant comforts, these giant masses of possessions, and dangling from it is a little stalk of our soul. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so we have hard work ahead of us, as I indicated last week. It's hard work to tend to our souls with the same attention that we tend to our investments and to our stuff and to our comfort and to our achievement. It's hard work. But fortunately for us, we are not the first to take this challenge. We are not the first to try it. In reality, the followers of the kingdom of God for thousands of years have been doing the same thing, trying to be attentive to our souls in a world that pushes our attention elsewhere. In other words, we're attempting to live with alertness to our inner spiritual lives. The teaching that Jesus had that we read earlier, and I quoted from just a second ago, is likely familiar to you. It's from Matthew 6. And it begins by reminding us not to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. That's how this section sort of begins. And then it ends with the now familiar proverb, you cannot serve both God and money, or God and mammon, if you grew up with me in KJV world. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and mammon, or stuff, or materials. But between these two sections... There's another section of teaching that Jesus inserts there. Two verses about the eye. And we we may well ask, what does that have to do with this discussion? It seems like no one can serve two masters, verse 25, flows nicely out of verse 21. For there your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But between these two thoughts, right in the middle of these two lessons about possessions and money, there's these two verses. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? At first blush, it might be difficult. Well, how does this fit into the context of materialism and of stuff? He talks about your treasure. He talks about your money. And then in the middle, there's this thing about the eyes and Think for a few minutes. I think we'll understand how bad our eyes are when it comes to the love of material things and the accumulation of wealth. I know what you're going to think during this sermon because I've been where you are. I'm going to talk in this sermon about saying, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And you're going to go, no, 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 not me. And you're going to want to cover your eyes. I'm going to give an example. I'm going to say the car you're driving was probably too much 
and you spend a lot of money for a little high-class moniker. And you're going to say, la, 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 la. I'm going to say today, you have too many shoes. No human being needs the number of shoes you have. And you're going to go, no, 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 no. Make him stop. Bad example. Pick something that doesn't really apply to me. It's amazing that nothing makes us more uncomfortable than someone standing up front and telling us that perhaps we have too much stuff, which just goes to show that's the problem. I could stand up here for an hour and tell you to stop stealing. Don't steal. Stealing's bad. Ten Commandments, don't steal. And you all would go, yeah, you're right. Don't steal. That's because very few of you are thieves. Notice I said very few. But the fact of the matter is, when I start standing up here and talking about your stuff, you start saying, I want to close my eyes. Which is why Jesus, I think, in the middle of this section says, if you're blind to this, your whole body is full of darkness. So my encouragement is simply this. Please do your best to keep your eyes open. The Spirit might have something to say to you this morning. Well, I've said that the challenge of spiritual seeing when it comes to our possession far predates suburbia. Jesus talks about it, and so does Amos, as we'll see in a moment. The accumulation of wealth has been a problem with human beings as far back as there's been any wealth to accumulate. It's no different in one way, but it's very different in another in our culture, because in no other culture... And in almost no other society has there been such wealth. And in almost no other society in history has the accumulation of wealth been such a cultural expectation, a cultural pressure, even a cultural pastime. In what other culture could I speak to a group this size and have 90% of you immediately understand me when I say this? Your thimble is on my boardwalk. You owe me $500, and with that money, I'm going to buy a hotel as soon as I can get my wheelbarrow to Ventnor Avenue. Now, the fact that you even understood what I just said shows you how even our pastimes have to do with accumulating money. The board game, of course, is Monopoly. It's a game that no one seems to play, but everyone seems to have played. So I don't know if you played enough to have a Monopoly strategy, but if you're looking for one, I'm going to give it to you. Here is Rick Dino's Monopoly strategy. Buy everything. If you land on it, buy it. Buy it, buy it, buy it. If you run out of money, mortgage what you bought to buy more. Buy as much as you possibly can until there's nothing left to buy. And then it's just a roll of the dice. And you just kind of hope that your other opponents will land on all the stuff that you've bought. It comes down eventually to a matter of luck. Will you avoid their properties? Will they land on yours? And you just kind of hope that you've gotten the right properties and have enough stuff, hotels and, and houses, enough stuff on your property to take everyone else's money and win. That's my monopoly strategy. Take it or leave it. And that's a fine strategy for monopoly, but it doesn't work so well in real life. But interestingly, that's exactly how Many suburbanites live. 
Achieve as much as we can, buy as much as we can, accumulate as much as we can, and then just hope for the best. Just hope the roll of the dice will help us to win. But interestingly, as believers, we understand that the world is not governed by luck or by chance or by the roll of a dice, but that the world is governed by a creator God who has given us guidance on how to live rightly and has expectations for those of us living in this world. And we see that back in Amos, if you want to flip back to that section in Scripture. Amos 3, 9 through 15, that was read earlier. We get a similar picture from Amos that we did from Jesus regarding the dangers of accumulating wealth and then depending on that wealth for our security. These verses open with a somewhat odd invitation. It's a proclamation to Ashdod and Egypt in verse 9. Ashdod and Egypt are enemies of Israel. And in the prophecy, he invites these enemies to surround Israel in the hills. And he says, look, enemies, at Israel and how they're living and what's about to happen to them. And when they look down on Israel, they see Israel's wickedness is not a whole lot different than their own. In Israel, there is unrest and oppression of the poor. It says Israel does not know how to do what is right. But in verse 10, look what they do know how to do. They know how to hoard, plunder, and loot in their fortresses. They had lost the understanding of doing what is right, but had become experts at accumulation of things. In Jesus' words, they had become experts in storing up for themselves treasures, but on earth. And so what is the result? Verse 11, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, An enemy will overrun the land and pull down your strongholds and plunder your fortresses. Enemies will plunder the very wealth that they have been storing. It sounds a lot like Jesus' teaching, doesn't it? Where thieves break in and steal. The statement of judgment continues in verse 12. Small side note here, verse 12 is one of the most difficult passages to translate in Amos. It's one of the more difficult ones in the Bible. If you have an NIV, it probably has a little footnote. You want to look there, and the footnote's going to say something like, the meaning for this Hebrew line is uncertain, or something like that. Which is a Bible translator's way of saying to us, you have no idea how long we have spent trying to figure out this line. The struggle with the line is because the line is a hapax legomenon. Hapax legomenon is a, is a Greek word. It applies to linguistics, and it simply means this. Uh, it means something to the effect of only once or said only once. So it's a phrase or a line in written language that only appears one time, which means in order to translate it, you have to just deal with the context that you have. There's no like cross-comparing it from other places in Scripture or any other writings. In other words, this line that we have in Hebrew is the only place in existence that this line exists. And so they have to try to translate it based just on this line. Which makes it very difficult. So, okay, there's the linguistics lesson. Here's a translation of it that I think is best. It's from Douglas Stewart's commentary on the book of Amos. 
Continuing this idea of judgment, God has said, I will pull down your strongholds. This is what Yahweh says. As a shepherd rescues from a lion's mouth a couple of leg bones or a part of an ear, so will the Israelites who live in Samaria be rescued. Just some luxurious bedding here, some fine couch fabric there. The implication of the verse is clear. When judgment comes, what good will a handful of expensive possessions be? The question is still pretty penetrating today. The judgment mentality continues in verse 14, where God declares the removal of their place of worship in Bethel, which means house of God, and then there's a little play on the word house. In the same way that this house of worship will be removed and destroyed, so also will their fancy winter houses, summer houses, and mansions be demolished. You, say, you see, even way back in ancient Israel, there was a monopoly mentality. The Israelites had developed this monopoly mentality of, of, of accumulating as much as possible and then hoping for the best. And we may say that a lot in life is based on rolling the dice, is based on luck, is based on you were just there, happened to be right place at the right time to get that promotion. You just happened to pick the right stock at the right time to gain that wealth. You just happened to take early retirement as soon as, right before the company went under. We might see there's a lot of luck or chance in the development of our wealth. But what some people call luck, we call providence. And we must open our eyes to see that we gain wealth because of God's goodness. We gain wealth because of God's goodness. But when we gain wealth because of God's goodness and then thoughtlessly spend it on material gadgets and bigger homes and more clothes, too much entertainment, then we put ourselves in danger of judgment. That's just the way it is. We're taking what God has given us, and if we are not spending it and using it wisely, we put ourselves in danger of judgment. It's not like the people of Israel had not been warned. It's not like we had not been warned. Back in Deuteronomy, the people are all pumped, right? They've been wandering around the wilderness. And they're about to enter the promised land. This land flowing with milk and honey. This land of great wealth. This land of great uh, accumulation. And as they're about to enter the land, God says to them, You may say to yourself, when you get into the land, you may say to yourself, My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. So when we take Amos' warning of judgment against depending on self-sufficiency, when we take Jesus' warning about loving possessions and loving possessions and stuff more than God, when we take these warnings and we align them with the terms and conditions of suburbia, we find that we are being pulled in two different directions, don't we? And we have a decision to make in this area, and we have work to do in this area. Well, let me spend the final few minutes I have with some practical tips on pulling our souls towards the area of, of simplicity. Here's some ideas for living a theology of less. First, let's all just admit it now that no purchase comes without spiritual implications. You are, if you are a Christian, you absolutely cannot 
drive out to Best Buy today and buy a $1,000 TV and say there is no spiritual implications to this decision. You just cannot do it. If you're trying to, you're blinding yourself to the truth. All of your purchases have spiritual implications because God has provided you with the ability to gain wealth. So your decisions about how you make, spend your money is a spiritual one. Does that mean that it's wrong to buy a TV? No. But it might be. It might be wrong for you to buy a TV. Are you even asking? Seriously, are you even asking? Is it wrong for you to renovate your bathroom? Probably not, but it might be. Are you stopping and saying, we're going to wait a month and we're going to pray about it as a family to make sure that's the best place for our 15 grand? Are you even asking? If you're not, then you're living like spending your money is all your decision and it's all your money to do what you want with. But it is not, because the wealth you have has been provided by God. So the question for us needs to be this. It's not always just, can I afford it? But the question needs to be, should I? The question is, should I? You're not la-la-laing me yet, are you? You want to. I know you want to. I want to do it too. I want to la-la-la myself. The next point applies to most, but not all of you. You need to break your buying addiction. If you live in America today, you are likely addicted to buying something. There is something in your life that you cannot live without. And it depends on who you are. It might be CDs or shoes or iTunes songs. It might be computer gadgets. It might be cars or computer games or books. It might be knickknacks for your homes. It might be tools for your garage. It might... It might be coffee. It might be that $6.95, 12-ounce cup of coffee. There's something in your life, most likely, that you buy too much of, too easily, without enough thought. You already have enough of it. It's ridiculous that you have 422 CDs. You just need to stop it. You just need to stop. Now, I'm not saying it's easy, but there's a sense where you need to just take a stand against the consumerism of our society. You just need to say, I will not do this anymore. I will not buy everything that appeals to me. I'm just going to stop. And you might flippantly try to say, oh, well, you know, I could stop anytime. Which you all, we all know is a lie. But anyway, you say, oh, I, I could stop anytime. But the fact of the matter is many of us can't. And if you think that you can't stop, if there's that feeling inside you that says, I don't know if I could go very long without buying that kind of thing, then you're simply admitting the issue that Jesus is facing. You're simply saying, my heart and my treasure are not with Christ. And so you may need to surround yourself with some people who are going to ask you hard questions. You may need to surround yourself with people who are going to pray for you. It is not silly to have people praying for you that you don't buy a CD every week. It's not silly. Because it could represent an addiction in you of consumerism. Thirdly, de-accumulate. Get rid of stuff, give it away, throw it away, sell it, just get rid of it. De-accumulate. But here's the catch. See, there's a trick. We all have these tricks when it comes to stuff, right? 
The idea of deaccumulating is not making space in your closet to reaccumulate. I know you could all go home and find a truckload of junk to get rid of, but then within halfway through the week, some of you would be back at the store replacing it. Old clothes out for the new one, old car out for the new one, old lawnmower out for the new one. That's not the idea. It's not to reaccumulate, it's just to get rid of for good. Buy less. Now, this is, I'm no financial guy, but some of you are, so you can correct me later. If you buy less, you will have more money. <laughs> I'm going out on a limb with this one. If you buy less, you will have more money. In addition, one of the great challenges of having a lot of stuff is that it takes all kinds of time to sort it, to store it, to go through it, to take care of it, to resort it, to restore it, and to retake care of it. If you have less stuff, you have more time. Is it possible that you just heard a sermon that told you how to have more time and more money? It is. Isn't it odd that in suburbia we have so much stuff and we all want more time and more money? And if we just got rid of some of the stuff, we'd have more time and more money? And not more money I would propose to just spend on yourself, but more money for the work of the kingdom? More money for works of justice and charity and caring? We'll talk a lot about that next week. It's almost too simple. All right, lastly, and we've got to close. Don't be trend lackeys. You know what a lackey is? It's a servant who follows instructions without question. I used to designate one person in my youth group when I was a youth pastor to be my lackey. They didn't like it, but they did it. Suburbia wants to make you a trend lackey. Suburbia wants to tell you that if it's out of style... It is no longer of use to you. Most of you have enough clothes in your closet right now to last you for 20 years. Don't you? Or at least for 8 or 10. Now, if you're a kid, that's not true because you're growing out of it. And I know some of you people, you grow out of your clothes too. <laughs> not this way. Well, you know. But the fact of the matter is most of you Honestly, right? Let's open our eyes. Most of you could not buy another pair of clothes for the next three years and you'd be fine. Except that your clothes would go out of style. I'm only 35, but in my 35 years, I've seen jeans go from dungarees, which is what I wore growing up, from dungarees to tapered leg to whitewash to pre-ripped to faded to stonewash to baggy to straight leg to button fly to loose fit. And some of us have bought every style along the way just because the style changed. Some of your closets have a stack of the decades. There's my tight leg and there's my stonewash and there's my rip from 1987 and there's, and you write, and it doesn't apply just to clothes. We are pushed to follow the trends with just about everything. We buy new appliances, new tools, new computers, new cars, new TVs, new countertops, new couches, new dining room tables, new rugs. We buy all of these things because we feel like the old one is just not in style anymore. Not because there's anything wrong with it, but we want to be fashionable and we want to be trendy. 
We have been tricked somehow into thinking that being trendy somehow makes us more. I don't know what it makes, it makes us more of, more hip, more trendy. But it doesn't make us more godly. We often ask as Christians, how is it that we, we're, we're different from the world? We look at the news and we see just some bad examples, don't we, of Christians trying to make a difference in the world. But then we see the other example of a bunch of churches that are filled with people that go home in their lives and they don't seem to make any difference at all. So what is it that we do to make a difference? I propose to you that you will stand like a light on the hill if you buck the consumer trends of of suburbia. You will not look like your neighbors if you live simply. You will not look like your neighbors if you're not trying to accumulate. You will be different. And you will not only be different in what you possess, but you will be different in your perspective of life and your view of the world. You will talk differently. You will care for people differently. You will have more time and more money to use to care for other people. And if more and more Christians were in that place, we would be making more of a difference in our world. So that is my challenge to you. Make a difference in your community and in your world by living out a theology of less. And by doing so, people might just get a glimpse of Jesus right here in suburbia.